Welcome back, everybody. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, whatever time day it is that you're you're checking in and listening to us. Hope you're having a good day. Welcome back to another episode of Clubhouse Talk. This is one of your main co-hosts, as always, Kylie Morrison, alongside Joseph Baraz. Joe, how are you doing today? We're doing good. I apologize for my early departure last week or two weeks ago episode. I uh, recently moved and we were having some... uh, Wi-Fi difficulties. So, but I'm back and ready to roll this time. Technology is is great until it stops working. So, hopefully, uh, fingers crossed, we get through this. No issues at the at the new place, and we can uh, get this episode rocking and rolling. Absolutely, let's do it. So, well, we'll uh, we'll start with pretty much the main topic that we we've been covering here for the last few months, and we're going on this every other week uh, status right now until we get to uh, football season. So, about another. Yeah, the month of it here, but we'll we'll catch up with the Braves from where we last left them. Of the last time that we were talking, we had Sam on, and we were we were sitting in the middle of the All Star break. Ronald had just torn his ACL, and we were we were looking at this kind of murderer's row coming out of the break, and not sure what on earth was gonna the Braves were gonna look like. Um, we said going into it that if they came out and they were hot, then they could be buyers at the deadline. If they came out and they floundered, then they could be sellers at the deadline. And the Braves have done what they've done the entire season, which is they have tread water for the last two weeks. We've come out yeah, and it's loss, win loss. It it's honestly been yeah, I I'd say gauging expectations. It's about as decent as you could expect them to do with the run of teams they had to play. I mean, Padres arguably the best team in baseball. Then you got a couple with the Phillies, and then you got now we're in a five game stretch with the Mets. So um, some positives to take away. I mean, it looks like our starting pitching has been a little bit more consistent. I'd say we're getting, I mean, Drew Smiley's really been better as the season's gone on. He had kind of battled through one a um, couple nights ago, but he managed not to give up a run. Uh, had, I think he re- left with a left leg. Something yeah, it was, a, le- it was a left knee soreness. Turned out to be nothing. He, he threw a side session today, and he's scheduled to make his next start, which I believe will be Thursday, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, but the, the real big news since the, the Acuna injury has been the addition of Jock Peterson, which was a guy that we talked about a lot over the offseason as somebody who, had we not signed Marcel, could have been that, that left field spot. And I think he's fit into that role really well. I mean, he's got great power. And then uh, in that leadoff spot, he's also kind of shortened up a couple of times. He got some pretty crucial hits when it mattered. So all in all, I'm very happy with that signing and the way he's played so far. Yeah, that was that was a bit of a surprise. Right um, right as they were coming out of the All-Star break, they make the trade for for Jock Peterson. The Cubs are, are definitely sellers come this uh, deadline. And and the Braves needed a, a needed somebody to play in the outfield with Ronald going to be out, and so he's taking over that right field spot with Ronald out. Um, he he has the ability to kind of play all throughout the outfield, and he's really taken over the leadoff spot well. Um, he's beating the shift when he needs to. He the personality seems like a really good fit. Uh, it's it, it's been a really welcome addition having him having him back uh, in the lineup or to our lineup, I should say. And, you know, you got a guy who's not only a good ball player, but he's got a lot of experience in the playoffs as well. I mean, he was with the Dodgers for a long time before he had his, his brief stint with the Cubs, and I don't know if he's ever missed a postseason. Yeah, he got caught up in, I think, 2015, so he's been through all those runs with the Dodgers. And, I mean, they call him Jocktober for a reason. He's like a career 280 hitter, and in 64 games he has seven or eight bombs, and 
in the postseason that's doing some pretty good damage when it matters most. Yeah, and I, I think we we kind of speculated a little bit. It could be like a a double trade deal at the deadline. Um, the more I've seen him play with the club, I don't think that will happen. I actually – I'm going to be – I mean, if, if nothing else changes, I'll be lobbying for him to hopefully stay with us again next season if the situation, you know, doesn't – change with Marcel, which I mean, who knows what will happen, but it doesn't look good. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing him being our, our starting left fielder. Um, his main issue is against left-handed pitching, which he hasn't seen a whole lot in his career because he's kind of been in that, like, they don't start him. Yeah, they don't really start him against lefties. So that would be – that'll be something interesting to keep your eye on as the season progresses and he's going to be the consistent starter out in the outfield for us. But um, all in all – Nothing to complain about thus far. Yeah, I mean, we really didn't give up much for him. Gave up Bryce Ball, who's a, a very big power bat in our system. Um, a very, very large human being. I think he's like 6'6", 240, um, first baseman. But, he, I mean, he was he was more projected as a DH-type guy with the DH likely coming to the National League starting next year. Um, so, and he was only in high A. So he had, he had crushed the ball in low A. And then really struggled in high A this year so far. So they kind of sold sold on a good time for him. He might turn into something. He might not. But honestly, like I said, he's much most of just a power guy. He wasn't going to play any defense. Not a long term solution at first base. And and so I think it was a, a really good move. And I agree with you. I wouldn't mind seeing him stick around either. Uh, just from what we've seen so far, hopefully uh, he'll be able to to show us what he's got in the postseason if the Braves can put it on here for the next couple months but when they made the deal obviously that this whole murderers row two week stretch was still to come up so the Braves were thinking well worst case if they fail they could flip out to some other team at the deadline you don't really lose much you're basically just flipping prospects and clearly with what the Braves have done sitting four I believe four games back um in third place in the east they're going to be buyers at this deadline and so they're not moving jock. They're going to be buying. It's a matter of how big are they buying, but I, I can almost guarantee you they will be buying. I, I agree. I think the, the trade for jock showed kind of a clear philosophical change for the Braves of where we've, I mean, I guess going back probably to almost 2013, we've really held on to most of our prospects almost to a fault at times and to see us pretty, I I mean, not even really close to the deadline, go get somebody like Jock as soon as we needed him. I think that shows that we could be in a position to to go out there and maybe deal some of our other prospects. I don't know who. I haven't heard a whole lot of rumors being circulated around other than uh, just some random talks. But, um, I mean, with the Mets batting, I mean, they don't, they don't score a lot of runs. They're very much pitching-heavy team. And then with DeGrom having these nagging injuries throughout the season – if we can get on a run, we're right there. I mean, it's it's been one of those seasons that we've kind of just – I mean, we've been pretty much pessimistic, obviously, because this season hasn't gone our way. I think if we were healthy all year, we'd probably be running away with the division, to be completely honest, at, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's been – we knew it was going to be a hard, pretty evenly fought match coming into the season with, with these teams – um, especially with the Mets, Phillies, and, and Braves going into it, we kind of figured that. And then it's kind of been mediocre play from all three teams, but they have been been bet on, uh, have been you know dead on with each other. Anybody that watched the Mets play yesterday in the doubleheader against the Braves, I, I think we could all sit there and say 
this Mets team is not a team that we're scared of and team that we can't, we can't chase down. I mean, I think we could chase them down with the people that we have now. If we want to be able to chase them down, then you go out and get people to be able to do it. I, I think that the squad today would give it a run. I don't think that they get it done. So that's why I'm saying that they're going to need to go out and add in the Phillies. The Phillies are kind of in the same place as the Braves where they look at the Mets and they think the same thing, but the Phillies have their own holes. And frankly, I think some of the Phillies problems are bigger than the Braves problems. The Nationals are going on full sell. Um, Scherzer's going to be dealt at the deadline. Trey Turner might be dealt at the deadline. They're cleaning house there in Washington this year on all their rental type people. And then the, the Marlins really aren't doing anything after, uh, since they've come out of the break and they're just kind of falling to be Miami. So you've got a three team race for the last, last 60 days of the season coming up. No, yeah, I, I, I'm absolutely with you. I think it'll, it'll be interesting to see what kind of moves are made. And then some other positive news is Travis Darno is now the bullpen catcher. So he's probably going to get placed on some sort of rehab assignment, I would imagine, here somewhat soon, which is in a, in a week. He's going to be, uh, I think, next. they said early next week he's starting his rehab assignment. So. so, I mean, it's not – too unrealistic that we could see him back in the end of August, which would be, I think, a huge, you know, boost to the team, both morale and just, I mean, he's an all-star catcher and calling games because, I mean, for a while with Contreras, it was not there at that position. I mean, we we still don't really have a, a solid catcher. It's just kind of placeholding at this point. But yeah, I mean, we've got two veterans that as great as they are at, at, at calling games, the bats aren't there. I mean, there's, there's a reason why – we've been able to pick up these guys in the middle of the season when we have for what we have. Yeah. So. And, and in terms of catchers, I'd be hard pressed to find somebody who can hit the ball better than Travis Darnell. There's not so, many. Yeah. I mean, it's not silver slugger last year. Um, so that'll be huge to get him back. And then, you know, if I, I think as Shane green has settled more into the season, some of his stuff's coming around, which looks kind of positive in his last few appearances. Um, but we'll see. I mean, we still, do have that big bull, bullpen gap, and that's what fingers and toes crossed. I'm hoping that's what we go and get at the deadline. I think I think it's pretty clear that the Braves – I think we still need one more bat in the lineup. I, I think you look at the bottom of the lineup, and as great as guys like Almonte and Heredia have been, I think we need another bat in the lineup down there, um, preferably somebody in, in left field. And then on the flip side, for bullpen, I mean, the good news is – you're getting Waskari Noah back sometime in August. That's a guy I think that they could put in the bullpen. He's got the stuff for it. I think he's a he's got the mentality to be able to come back and just want to do whatever he can to help the team win. So I I look forward to kind of seeing what he does when he comes back. It's only it's a hand injury, not an arm injury. So there shouldn't really be too much trouble in the buildup coming back. So in a sense, you're getting two people back. It's like a trade. You're you're getting a huge bat in Darno. And then you're going to get a bullpen piece in Yanoa. So those two are good. I still think you need another bat and another bullpen. And I think that's what, what we need to get in the next two days. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. Um, my emphasis definitely be a bullpen. Um, I think there's going to be – I don't think there will be any shortages of bats to get out there. We probably won't have to pay too high to get one. Um, it, I mean, even a veteran guy – I mean, Pablo hasn't done very well as the season's gone on. He's kind of – sunk into a little bit of a slump yeah he's he's really struggled um since since june i think he's won for his last 28 or or 29 or something i mean pinch hitting is no easy feat and 
Uh, I will say a lot. He's putting good contact to the ball sometimes, and then there's other times that he's still going up there and kind of wailing at the ball. It depends on the night for him. But Yeah. But uh, speaking of hard-hit balls that we're getting out early in the season, Freddie Freeman has continued to be hotter than hell in July. He had, what was it, 29 plate appearance without a swing and a miss before it finally ended. It was uh, 33. It was like 156 pitches in a row that he saw without a swing and a miss. That is beyond stupid how good that is. To take, to swing – and always make contact with the ball for 150 plus pitches is just not normal. <laughs> it's insane. And, and it's not like he's dinking ground balls. I mean, he's smoking the ball. And, and no, there was a time to my own fault, and I should have known better, where I was questioning if Freddie was going to have an NL MVP sort of hangover, but it appears not to be the case. He is hitting, he is playing better than anybody in baseball over the last. And month or he's half. done it since, and he's done it even better since Ronald's gotten hurt. And, and it's Fred, you know, we've all put, we rode Freddie for so long before Ronald even got to the Braves. And we know that you can ride Freddie's bat is one that you can genuinely ride in, in your lineup night after night. And that's pretty much what he's trying to do again, come the second half of the season. It's like, he's putting the, he's putting the team on his shoulders and he's like, no, what, you know, my, my counterpart might not be here, but let's still do it. Yeah. And Freddie's a guy who, I mean, he, he's been, he was in the dark ages of the Braves, the early part of his career. And so I don't think there's anybody who probably wants to get out there and compete for a championship more than he does. So he's going to do whatever it takes. I and mean, I don't, even if we make the playoffs, I don't think this is going to be the team to do it, but you know, I, <laughs> I can, <laughs> I can respect the, uh, the effort out of a guy who has nothing left to prove really. Hey, it's just get in and see what happens. I mean, there's, there's a lot of times, the best team does not win in the playoffs when we get. Well, there. look at the Nationals two years ago. I mean, they were. I mean, we were a better team than they were. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, it's it's really who gets hot. And you know, if you look at where the Braves stand, they have an opportunity here for the last sixty days to get hot and get into the playoffs. And then you're riding momentum, and some other teams might be faltering. You don't know what injuries happen between now and then for either us or for other teams. But with with the way starting pitching is coming around, I mean, Kyle Muller is. It's no longer a fluke. He's gone through five or six starts now in a row where you can see that he's got the poise. He's got the stuff. Um, Tuki Toussaint has been absolutely electric in his two starts since he's come back. Uh, Ian Anderson's dealing with a little bit of a shoulder issue. He should be back here soon. Like you said, Drew Smiley's been pitching well. Morton has been pitching consistent. If you get freed, I mean, now you're back to talking about six people again. Yeah, which, I mean, if we – It's a good problem to have. Yeah, I mean, imagine if you throw Tukey, if you throw Tukey in the pen. I mean, I know he's starting great, but if you had to throw Tukey to the pen, he's got a lot of stuff to put in the pen right now. It's nothing bad to have options, especially in the long reliever category, because if you, I mean, if there's a scenario in a you know high leverage game where you trot out somebody and they're getting shelled in the first two three innings, hand the ball over to Tukey. Yeah, or, you know <laughs> some of the other options out there, but I mean you can feel confident that you can get three innings out of him out of the pen. Without a doubt. And so they, I think that they're primed in a position to genuinely make a run. It's just how much is this front office going to, to give them the ability? I think that they desperately need a closer um, for the bullpen. That, that is the position that they need. Will Smith is good. Will Smith is not great. Um, they are going to need somebody that can ride and, when you hand them the ball night after night, 
that they will be able to close out the game. I mean, who would you who would you have your eyes on? I mean, there there's going to be a couple names out there, but there's there's really only one big big name, and I think a lot of Bryce fans know know that name pretty well about who might be dealt at this deadline. I mean, I would absolutely love to see Kimbrell. If the if the Cubs are really going to blow up the ship, I mean, there's they're shopping Chris Bryant around pretty heavily from pretty much everything I've heard. I would love to see us try to go and get Kimbrell. I mean, Kimbrell will be dealt. There is no doubt in my mind that Kimbrell will be dealt because he is having for I know a couple of years ago he kind of had that that holdout season at the same time as um Keichel and a lot of Braves fans want us to get him, and then he really struggled with the Cubs. Um, that is not the case this year. Kimbrell looks like vintage Kimbrell. He has been electric, and I cannot think of a cooler scenario than if we could find a way to deal and get him back in Atlanta. I mean, if they want to go big and you get a you get a Chris Bryant and Craig Kimbrell package, you throw Bryant out there in left field, you get your big power bat from the right side, someone that you can put in the fourth hole behind Freddie, you throw Kimbrell in the back of your pen. I, I mean, I think that you could get that deal done looking at a, at a Drew Waters, Kyle Wright type of starting with those two names, looking at that type of package. I absolutely think you could get that done. I absolutely agree. I mean, it, it, it's not going to be the question of if the Braves want to go and get somebody because we have a better farm. I don't know what our farm systems rank, but we have one of the better farm systems still in the MLB. I mean, we've got the horses that we can send. It's just going to be a matter of how much we're willing to sell or to sell from our prospects to get the guys that are ready. I mean, um, uh, it, it seems like it's pretty obvious to me. Yeah, it, it seems if you can get Kimbrel, do you do you know what his contract is? Uh, how many years remaining? Uh, so he's got it's this year, and then I believe it's an eight or ten million dollar deal this year, and then he's got a club option next year for about the same amount of money, about ten million dollars. And if they decline it, then you have to pay him a buyout. I forget how much about his worth. So there is a club option for next year on his contract. Which makes the answer even more simple because it's not just renting an arm for to hope that I know, you're, the late you're getting push him. because then you get him for a full season where you know we'll presumably be more healthy, knock on wood, than we are this season, and we'll be still in that window where we can compete. And the Braves haven't had a true closer since Kimball left. I mean, we had <laughs> Jim, or well, other than Melanson, really, but I well, I take that back. Melanson was a true closer, but I mean, Will Smith is he's just not the guy. He he just I mean, we texted last night. It, it's just he gets the ball and you're holding your breath. He doesn't look comfortable up there in that closing role. And I'm certainly as a fan not comfortable watching him in the closing role. He's a phenomenal setup guy. It's just like we've talked about, that mindset of being a closer is very different than the mindset of coming out in the seventh or eighth inning. It is. It's some people are meant for it. Some people aren't. And I think his stuff plays better in a, in a setup role and that seventh inning leverage or eighth inning setup role. I think that's where his stuff honestly plays better because I think that people are, are going up there in more of a position to swing because you're in a high leverage type of type of moment versus in the ninth, they're sitting on a lot of pitches. They're trying to start a rally if you're bringing in a closer. And so with that wiping slider, people are going to, people are going to, be more likely to spit on it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's just, it's like when you watch Diaz last night for the Mets. 
there was never a doubt in my mind that he was going to close out that game. I'm sorry, as a Braves fan, like the, it, there's there's certain stuff and certain mentality that closers have where they're just going to go out there and they're going to throw you their best pitch and you're just going to have to go and hit it. I mean, look what Mariano Rivera did for like a century with the Yankees. He threw a cutter pretty much 90% of the time and you just couldn't hit it. That's what you have to do to be an effective closer. You got that go-to pitch and you mix in some other stuff and you just say, here, here it is, go out there and hit it. And we but just – has with his fastball. Will Smith he, just doesn't have that kind of stuff. Kimbrell does yeah. with his fastball. It's he's going to go up there. He's going to throw you his 98-mile-an-hour fastball. He's going to be like, you know what, if you hit it, props to you. Same – Roldis Chapman does it. Hey, if you can hit my one-on-one, hit it. Yeah, he sticks his arm out. He stares down the catcher knowing damn well it's going to be a fastball, <laughs> and he shoves it down your throat. And that's what I want as a closer. That's all I want. We really haven't had anybody in a while have a closer that we really haven't had the the high velocity closer since Kimbrel. I mean, Melanson mm-hmm. closer, but we haven't had a lot of people in the back of our bullpen that are touching that mid to high nineties uh, or that that mid to upper nineties that that you seem like every team has in their bullpen. That when they hand the ball over, you've got someone that's throwing the ball ninety eight that you're trying to hit with nasty filled. I mean, Will Smith is up there chucking it at 93. Not that 93 can't play, but there's a big difference. We had the very short stint with Vizcaino, who had some pretty hot stuff, but he just – had a pretty hot head too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he wasn't the guy, but <laughs> – No. <laughs> um, but, no, I mean, to your point, it's just there's, there's the time-tested closer – build out and it's somebody that can throw a hot fastball and you just got to catch it. Agreed. So I, I, I'm telling you, if, if I was in the position and I think that the Cubs would genuinely listen on an offer of that's anything that starts with Drew Waters, you're going to get a lot of attention from, from any team you can throw in. You've got to give them some high pitching person and give them your choice of Bryce Wilson or Kyle Wright. Give them one of those two guys that have proven it on the big league stage. And they could do it. I mean, they could become really good pitchers, but sell on them. And then maybe you have to throw in another MLB player like a Camargo and then a lower level prospect. If, if you're doing a four for two and those are the two guys you're getting, I think Chicago does it just based off what Chicago gave up for Jock. And I absolutely think the Braves do it. I'm with you. I'm with you. I mean, it, it, it makes too much sense to me. That's the problem. It always makes too much sense. But I mean, so we'll see if this, if that trade comes to fruition and we get that as a package deal, it's just so hard to sit there and believe that the front office is going to do something huge like that. When we've said how injured we are, how battered we are and how we were just saying, this probably isn't the team for the world series. Maybe next year is, I mean, so you got to get people with, with years to go on their contract, hopefully, but that that's the real issue is will they give up the high prospects on a year that seems doomed or are they going to deal the low level people and get a couple pieces and try and sneak their way to the playoffs. And then we're going to get bounced very quickly in a divisional series. That's, that's going to be what, what happens. It's one of those two options. Yeah. And then, I mean, with that, the danger always comes if you're, you're absorbing some of these bigger contracts, like Bryant's got a pretty big size contract. So yes, he does. That, and there's those are some of the other dangers that creep into it. But I think if you're in the Braves front office, you got to be looking for a guy that's been there, done that, and this isn't the last year on their deal. 
and Kimbrell fits both of those boxes. Yeah, exactly. Like, it got, I mean, I cannot even imagine the electricity at Truist Park uh, of hearing him come out to what is it? Welcome to the jungle. Is that mm-hmm. a song? Yeah. If you see those lights drop in between the eighth inning, you bring out the iPhone chop, and then you have "Welcome to the Jungle" blaring in in Truist Park. Good God! His I first pitch would thinking about it. His first pitch would rip the catcher's glove in half. <laughs> I mean that that stadium would be rocking. I I will be there. I, I guarantee if we, if we make that trade, his first game I will be there. I don't care what it takes. <laughs> Got a lot of traveling coming up for myself for work, but if I can make it work, I would find a way to get myself there too. Because, oh boy, would that be something else to see? Yeah, yeah, it would. So. That, I mean, that's really where, like I said, that's where the Braves stand. They've got this still three more games left um, with New York going into this. Um, so I believe, let's see, tonight is, who's pitching for us tonight? Um, Charlie's, it, yeah, it's Charlie Freed, Smiley. The guy we're facing for the Mets tonight, I was, I texted you this earlier. He's had a, a real journeyman season, to say the least, um, in the last two months. The guy was called up on, on June 20th, made his start the next day, made his next start a week later on June 28th. Then he was DFA the day later. Then he was an elected free agent. He re-signed with the Mets, called back up a week later, made a relief outing, then made a start a week later. Then he was DFA a second time. Then he was a free agent again. Now he's back with the Mets about to make his another start. So it, it's been a uh, not not a very good two months or a month for this guy uh, with the Mets. So if we don't win tonight, I'll be sorely disappointed. And then freed against uh, McGill tomorrow. You like, you like our odds and that you smiley against Taiwan Walker and a really good pitching matchup on Sunday or on Thursday. I mean, so that's what you got you into the deadline and boy, oh boy, we'll know where they go. They've got to take two out of the next three. Oh yeah, absolutely have to. Got to take two of the next three, and then at minimum, if not three of three, and then you're looking at either being two or three games back. So could make some could make this really really interesting going into August. We'll see what the Phillies do. We'll see what the Mets do. Um, neither one of them have made any big moves at this moment. The Phillies were working on trading for a guy named Tyler Anderson from Pittsburgh, a pitcher. Um, there was an issue with one of the players that was going to be going back to Pittsburgh, a uh, physical. A, a medical issue so they're working through those details trying to figure out if the minor league will be replaced or if the if it will just get scratched or what's going on there so nothing of major yet we'll see what see what arms race this turns into in the next three days indeed so with that we'll um we'll, we'll scratch away from baseball and um i actually what I'll do next is uh, I want to do, we'll stick with kind of the recapping theme and we'll go back to two weeks prior when we got through the Braves talk with you. We were just beginning to talk about the upcoming going into the British open. And that's when we kind of lost you. We lost our, uh, lost you for your live picks. We're able to still get them in over, over text message. But so I guess, we had this whole super season with golf that we knew we were going to have when we came back from the pandemic with six majors in 12 months, a, a lot of golf, a lot of really big, important golf. 
And Colin Morikawa wins the first one that we come out to at, coming out of the pandemic at Harding Park, the PGA, and he, he caps off this major super season, as you will, with a with a win at St. Royal St. George's. Um, thoughts and your opinions on on the performance you saw from Morikawa? The uh, the guy can play. I mean, it's <laughs> you know we we've touched on his putting issues, but it's like when he gets in contention he is as clutch as anybody. I mean, he, his ball striking is second to none. First of all, I mean, we'll just get that out there to begin with. And when he gets that putter going, I mean, he is very tough to beat. He is young, confident. I mean, he, American golf is in good hands for a while with him because that cat can flat out play. And it's like, I saw a stat, his proximity to the hole with his six iron is the PGA tour average with pitching wedges. He's, insane stupid <laughs> i mean and and he's not incredibly long he's not going to sit there and dazzle you like you know a, a dj or a bryson does off the tee but he hits that little five yard cut through the bag religiously and it's beautiful it, i mean it it's how the game it's a clinic it, it's a clinic it's how the game is supposed to look when he's playing well although it's not supposed to look as easy as he makes it look i, I mean no. <laughs> but you go you're talking about his putting and we have he has been a terrible putter for the majority of his career and if you look at if you look at the weeks that he misses the cut he is losing four five maybe sometimes even six shots to the field and putting if you start looking at when he's making the cut and maybe getting his up 20 he's he's really scratching about dead even on the greens and strokes gain and then the weeks that he puts well and he picks up a couple shots. It's game over. If that guy is picking up putts on the field, it is absolutely game over because he's picking up so many in every other facet of the game, mostly because of that ball striking proximity you were just talking about. But I mean, just looking at it on Sunday, like the guy made, I don't know how many 10, six to 10 footers that were ridiculously high pressure high clutch moments and he made every single one of them in the back of the cup right in the middle of it yeah it's no doubt it just goes back to that you know timeless debate of pressure either makes you a better player or you fall apart and pressure absolutely makes Colin a better player 100 I mean you you can't go from being a mediocre putter to somehow draining everything when the stakes are the highest unless you can just find some separate zone like dare I say Tiger could in, in his heyday where it was like if if Tiger had a 10-foot putt of any meaning, you put your life savings that that thing's going in the jar. Yeah. I mean, and that that's kind of how it felt. I think on, was it 15 or 16 coming down the stretch, he buried like a 25-footer that it was just absurd. And it, 14, he made a bomb for birdie after he kind of hit a – pretty poor wedge coming into the green, it was four, yeah. which was really huge. And they backed it up with making another, I'd say like six or eight footer on, on 15 for par after he got a couple breaks on the two squirrely irons that he hit on 10 and on 15. Um, he got really good breaks ending up when he was in the tall stuff with a lie to be able to hit a good flop shot, pulled off a good flop shot to keep it within 10 feet of the hole and then made the putt for par not to bogey. I mean, I don't think he bogeyed in his last, 30 some holes or, or 20 some holes. It was an absurd amount going back to Saturday that he, he didn't make a bogey coming down the stretch. And that's how you close out a major championship. 
Yeah, I mean, he, he's got the stuff where, you know, we could look back or looking forward 10 years. I don't see why the guy couldn't win eight, ten, eight to nine, you know, maybe even 10 majors if he can maintain this level of ball strength, because it doesn't look like his swing is going to be one of those that's like a, a Jason Day, short-lived, a lot of injuries. It's very fluid and, you know, on plane. It's not, you know, a Bubba Watson thing where he's shaping the ball all over the place. It's very consistent, very solid, and it holds up under pressure. And, I mean, it, the attitude he has, I don't know how many of our listeners caught his his press conference afterwards of the British Open, but he was like, look, like they were asking about the pressure of closing out majors and how he's been able to do it so successfully, basically his first two attempts. And he was like, you know, like, this is what I've always wanted. Like, I want to be in these situations where, like, I have a chance to win and I, I like, I thrive under that pressure. I mean, for somebody who's, what is he, 23? Yeah. I mean, to have that, that level of confidence in their game to know that they're still the new kid on the block, but hey, I've got two majors. I've got the same amount of majors as some people in the Hall of Fame. He's the first person to ever win the PGA and win the British Open, win two majors in their first try in the major. And he did in the PGA and the British. Uh, You look at the list of of major champions who have won one major. And I'm I'm not taking away from anybody who's won one single major, but there are some names on there that you look at. And it can raise an eyebrow of like, really, this guy won a major? I mean, he got – he got hot for that week and he won his major. You don't look at a, a list of two-time winners and think there's a mistake on that list. <laughs> no. and, and something else of, of note, it, these weren't, you know, snow like puppies chasing him down. I mean, that PGA, you look back last year, he had um, DJ on his heels. He had Jason Day. He had, I mean, that, that back nine, I can't remember the full nine. I think John Rahm was in the mix. Kepka was in the mix. You had all these big name guys who've been there and done it. Yeah, DJ Paul Casey, DeChambeau were all right there within a couple of shots. Um, Brooks was Brooks was in it going into the the last day, I believe. Um, Sky Shepherd, Matt Wolf, Jason Day, Tony Finau, they were all right there. You have all these huge name guys chasing down this kid, basically, and he not only holds them off, does it in emphatic style. I mean, that drive he hit when he drove the green was, I mean probably top 10 shots I've ever seen. And then you go and, and you turn it around to the British open. He's being chased by Louie who and Spieth. and Spieth who, I mean, Spieth, obviously he'll be in the hall of fame. Louie, maybe so, but Louie's been one of the most solid players in the PGA tour for years. So these aren't guys that are just going to buckle. You know, he had to go out there and win it. Spieth was playing good. I mean, Spieth had a kind of came out of the, the stars a little rocky, but when he made that eagle on seven, Spieth went charging. He made eagle on seven, birdies, birdies nine, birdies ten, uh, birdies, I believe, 14. I mean, he made a serious run at this, and Murakawa, every single time Spieth made, a, made his run, Murakawa answered to keep it at a two-shot pace. It, it never looked like it was going to be in doubt because every time that Spieth tried to pull it closer to one shot – Morikawa immediately answered and pushed it back out to two. So it, you never had that tense moment of like, there could be a playoff because you just knew Morikawa wasn't going to bogey. It was going to be, the only way it was going to happen was if Spieth made a couple birdies on some really, really hard holes coming in. Yeah. I mean, it, it was just phenomenal stuff. And, you know, I going in the Olympics he could be a, 
I don't see why not. I mean, looking at the major calendar next year, his game fits anywhere. I know. As long as he's got the putter going. There's there's really no weakness in his game other than that putter. And when, the, Like you said, when the putter gets hot. It, it's just going to be a matter of how many times does the putter add up on a, or heat up on a week that it's important to make sure because – he will heat up from time to time. It's been proven. He's won. He won the uh, the Barracuda. He won the W. He's won a WGC. He won the Workday at um, or up at Jack's Course, and now he's won two majors. So he's won plenty, proving that the heater will pop up. It's the putter will heat up. That it just matters of which weeks is it. Is it going to be tour weeks? Is it going to be WGCs? Is it going to be majors? That's what we just don't know. You can never count him out because that's all it takes. That's his formula to success right there. Yeah, and for me, he'd been one of those guys teetering. I guess, yeah, in a sense, I was searching for the validation of his game, kind of teetering on if you can include him with that in that elite category of the the Brookses, the Speeths, the Rorys, you know, guys of that nature. And that I certainly think he's he's in that list now. I mean, he's won the same amount of majors as Dustin Johnson. I know DJ's won like you know, 18 more total events, but when your career is done, it's the majors that get looked at. Yeah, that's the one. And he's got that's two. The, and that's the thing on Wikipedia everyone goes to look for. Yep. And, and he's got two, and he's got, you know, if, if all, nothing else drastically changed, he's got 20 years of being in realistic competition. I mean, it's it's crazy to think about, but – he could be a guy who racks up a, a pretty good number of majors, in my opinion. I agree. I, I think that I'd say minimum for him is looking in that five to six range and could definitely get closer to the double digits um, at the end of his career. Uh, but I would definitely say five or six is with beyond or not even close to, to a stretch for him. Just with what oh, I agree. I think that's very reasonable. Getting four shots a year. Uh, I guarantee you one of them will be the masters His putter. will he strikes the ball too good. And then it'll just be a matter of making the putts. So I'm sure he'll get plenty of chances at Augusta. And then just that game, it fits any tournament, fits any course. He can play links. He can play it at a long course in Harding park for a PGA. He can do it at a U.S. open. He competed this year pretty well. So. Yeah. Bright future. Without a doubt. So we'll um, we'll pivot to now that we've done a, some recapping of past week stuff. We'll, let's get to I, I say it is the talk of sports right now. Um, the hottest topic, the most outrageous thing that we've seen in a long time. And here we are a month out before college football. And we've got a, definitely got our new story of basically for the year before the season even starts which is that Texas and Oklahoma are going to leave the Big 12, and it looks very, very likely that they are going to become the newest members of the SEC starting in July of 2025. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and look, like those who keep up, I'm not, I don't have an SEC team, not a big fan of the SEC conference growing up in the South and not being an SEC fan, as a lot of you can probably imagine, is a little – Interesting, but I mean, you the Big 12 is, has been teetering on irrelevance for a while, and Texas and Oklahoma have been their flagship programs, and then they just the conference is left to die now. Oh, 100%. I mean, the conference is over, 
it was already kind of dead man walking a little bit. Um, it's, it was getting drained. And like you said, it was teetering on irrelevance. And then uh, it, this is just the nail in the coffin now. Yeah. But outside of that and the sentimental value of how, you know, college football has been forever changed by the college playoff system, which is, you know, for better, for worse, change isn't always bad. And everybody has their, their own opinions about the college football playoff. Um, but it creates this mindset of having like tiered conferences, in my opinions, where you're going to have the, the SEC as it has been for 15 years or close to it has been like your top conference. And then you've got Clemson and the ACC. Florida State was decent for a while, but it's really been the SEC, Clemson and the slash the ACC, Ohio State slash the Big Ten. And then you get, you know, Notre Dame sprinkled in there. Maybe a team like, you know, Oregon had a couple of good seasons, but it's like you, you've only really got one conference that needs to be paid attention to now. Yeah. And I, I wonder what it's going to do for recruiting. Um, I think it's pretty clear what it'll do for recruiting. Everybody's going to want to play for the SEC teams. And then I think another wrench gets thrown into it with these NIL deals for these college athletes. And then it, it just, it destroys historic rivals. I mean, Oklahoma, Oklahoma state, how does that fit into the schedule now? Um, yeah, I mean, unless you want to, I mean, there's the potential for it. I, I mean, you look at, you know, you, you get some of the matchups in Florida, Florida state happens every year. So there's the potential that those type of rivalries can, can stay on, but it's, it's not going to be easy for them to be able to work that in every single year of the schedule. And also with them coming to the SEC, I can guarantee you that the SEC is going to be, be moving to a nine game conference schedule and with you having three out-of-conference games, do you really want to go do that to yourself in one of those three out-of-conference games? When, by the way, the rest of the time in the SEC, look at the teams you're having to play nine weeks out of the year. Yeah. And I, look, like, I, I think it'll be cool to watch. I think it'll be cool to see how Oklahoma – not so much Texas, because I, I don't know how well Texas will actually be able to compete in the SEC. I mean, we can touch on that a little bit later. But Oklahoma certainly – will be interesting to see how they stack up against a full schedule without having to play like Kansas once a year. I mean, there's very few true pushover games in the SEC. I mean, even if you, you know, you go into Starksville and you play Mississippi state, that's still a football team that in any other conference probably wins nine games. So it, it'll be very interesting to see, I guess, as a, as a fan in that sense, but it's just the sentimental side and I hate to be this consistent with anything, but just the the traditionalist I am of sports, it just bothers me to see how much college football has changed so rapidly. And it's going to keep changing even more. I mean, the SEC will not be the only super, super conference, as you want to call it. Um, the Big Ten is going to be poaching teams from the Big 12. The Pac-12 will poach teams from the Big 12. Um, it's inevitable. I think the ACC will probably add West Virginia. It makes a lot of sense there. Um so you'll see, we'll see where teams go. I know Kansas has already talked to the, uh, the Big Ten. Obviously, won't do much for football. We'll do a lot for basketball, adding Kansas into that basketball conference. So there's a lot of different things to look at there. But do, first things first, don't make any mistake. This is absolutely, this isn't for because they want to be better competitors and they want to, uh, you know, they, they want a harder schedule and they want to make it harder for themselves to compete more. This is all for money. Um, I think that with the NIL coming out, the NCAA is teetering on irrelevance 
because one of the biggest things that the NCAA was there for was to govern teams from not paying their players. And now you can pay your players. And so, frankly, I don't see where the NCAA pops its head in anymore. And so I, I was seeing some numbers on this. And there's the potential for the SEC now adding Texas and Oklahoma to look at signing a $1 billion revenue contract for their media rights. $1 billion. Yep. And I, I also read that within the next five years, each school in the SEC is going to receive $75 million just for being a part of the SEC. So think of what that does in terms of, you know, facilities, facilities, you know, the, the staff you can hire, first of all, you know, just everything across the board, the SEC schools, I mean, even $75 million going to Vanderbilt, you know, it goes a long that, way. I that mean, could change the landscape completely for a school like that. You think about other sports that maybe they don't want to, maybe they don't want to invest all 75 million in football. You don't have to do that. 5 million gets a long way in a lot of other sports. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, Vanderbilt, they're a phenomenal baseball program. Yeah. So you throw the money there. I mean, Kentucky and basketball, you look at all these non-football programs, as you just mentioned. And I mean, the SEC golf schools, I, I don't think golf would get a huge allocation of that money, but think of the, you know, they could get the robo simulators in there, which that's a little technical, but you know, they, I mean, some of the tournaments that they could travel to some of the, the, the coaches that they can hire um, the equipment that they can get for their players. And so mm-hmm. it, it's all going to just keep adding itself up. And I do feel really, I do kind of feel bad for Texas A&M. They left the big 12 to be the only SEC team in Texas. They wanted to get away from the University of Texas to be on their own, to be in their own conference. And now they, it was kind of, I guess, a gentleman's agreement when AM joined all these years ago. And now Texas is here. So obviously that gentleman's agreement didn't mean that much at the time. But going to, you know, you kind of talk about the traditionalists and there will be rivalries that will be lost. You look at across the board and most SEC schools have typically two or three rivals that, that genuine really, really mean a lot. And there's a few schools that have more. And Tennessee is one of those schools where they have a lot of pretty solid rivals across the board. I mean, you talk to a Tennessee fan, Florida means a lot. Georgia means a lot. Kentucky means a lot. Vanderbilt means a lot. Alabama means a lot. That's five games on their schedule that they have every year that Tennessee fans would legitimately call a rivalry game. And so you're not going to be able to, to schedule these teams in every single year because it, what makes the most sense, and I agree that people are talking about what the SEC will do with 16 teams, is they're going to move to kind of this four-pod system. And that way, so you have your three guaranteed, the three teams in your pod, and then you'll rotate and you'll play two teams out of each of the other three pods, which gives you the nine. And one of the good things about this compared to what the SEC does now is that every player that steps on campus will play another school and visit that school every four years that they're there in college. So you'll get to see every campus and you'll get to have everybody in your four years. So you won't have these breaks where right now, I mean, like a school like AM Tennessee only sees every seven years and it's every 14 years you're traveling to that, uh, that person's school. So that's the only downside I'd say with the SEC right now. And, and I think that's what we'll see. So you start looking at some of the pockets, who matters the most. You've got Alabama and Auburn. They, they must stay together. You've got Tennessee and Alabama, which I think as much as Tennessee fans won't like it, 
because it sucks to have to play Alabama every year. There's too much tradition there. And I think that they will keep that together. So then you're looking at, okay, do you add in Vanderbilt or Kentucky? So Tennessee's losing both Florida and Georgia, and they're going to be losing one of Kentucky or, uh, or Vanderbilt as a rivalry game. So it's, it's just stuff like that will be very different going forward. And it's that, that I'm not so happy to see in because of those rivalry games being lost, but I do think it will be really fun to watch the competitiveness of this conference week in and week out and how it, it was already tough. So the tough just gets tougher. Yeah. I mean, and, just to kind of piggyback off that, you look at the college football playoff situation. There's, I don't think there's any scenario where two teams from the SEC don't get in now. Especially, yeah, I just can't 12. imagine it. Once you have twelve teams, they might get three, yeah. three or four teams in the in in it every year. True. If I was saying, even if nothing else changes, if they stick with the four, I just don't oh yeah. If you stick at four, then I can almost guarantee, yeah, you're getting two in pretty much every year the way it stands now. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to. And, you know, that's – it just is what it is. But, I mean, strength of schedule is one of the biggest metrics that they have for the rankings, and nobody's even going to come close to what the SEC is going to put together, especially, I mean, the, the SEC West. I mean, you got LSU, Alabama. I mean, you mentioned the restructuring, but, you know, Oklahoma's in there now. <laughs> Auburn, it's like – Yeah. It's insane. It's – it'll this be – the, the worst this is for is for the teams like like South Carolina or a Kentucky, um, Mississippi State, and Ole Miss, the middle-tier programs that every once in a while they might be able to put together a really solid team. But it's about to get a whole lot tougher for them to do that. And then those years that they do have a really solid team, you've got to play that much harder of a schedule now. Yeah, I mean, they'll just get absolutely beat up all season long. And, and frankly, every team in the SEC is going to get beat up all season long. It's just it's just truly going to be survival of the fittest. If you can get out of the SEC with two losses, that you probably are the best team in college football. What road trips you'll have to take, the teams you'll have to face year in and year out. I mean, who's just you've got other teams that have. I mean, Texas is not even good right now. Um, Tennessee isn't good right now. Florida's hit or miss. I mean. You start talking about if these teams get back to prominence. Texas will be good within the next five years. I can almost guarantee it now. I think with Sark. With Sark, A, and then with the – because, I mean, they've lost recruits to A&M from just A&M being in the SEC. They're not going to lose those guys anymore. And, and they're, they will be good again. I'm very confident in that. It's funny. I I was thinking about it of like, you know, not only does Sark leave Bama and and go to Texas, then he's like, hey, Sam, watch this. And then he brings Texas into the same conference. I mean, Nick's got to be just getting sick and tired of these assistants, not only leaving, but then joining in his conference just to make his life even tougher. Um, He probably loves it because none of them can beat him. (laughs) I swear. Nick Saban has just some some little trick or something. It's it's like if they if he was building like a program with with these with these coaches and there's just like one last upgrade that he doesn't give these they doesn't install and it's like that last upgrade is how to beat him and he just finds a way to to keep that one little piece away from everybody. Kirby hasn't done it. Pruitt, um, Muschamp, and none of them. <laughs> it's Obi Wan versus Anakin. He's he's got some sort of high ground. 
always has the high ground. He always he's got he's two steps ahead. So, um, yeah, I, I think that when you look at the competitiveness, at least where it stands, looking at today, I see Oklahoma being a lot like an LSU type team where they can easily come out and, and be a twelve or you know a twelve win team, ten win team, whatever, and win a bunch of games, be a true national title contender. And then I look at Texas as a lot like an Auburn team where they're going to be really, really nervous. And, and that's kind of the, the competitiveness that I see these two teams fitting in as it stands now. Um, obviously, a lot can change between, between now and the next four years when they actually join the conference, though. So, because they're going to wait out for the TV deal with the big, their, their uh, membership rights deal with the Big 12 and first before they're going to join the SEC. I thought they got out of that. So they they've they basically has said that they don't want to renew their rights is what the letter was said that they released. They, they basically said, "Hi, we're not going to be members come then after the end of our deal. We're, we're not renewing our contract. So they're going to be free agent schools in that sense. They're going to go up to a vote with the SEC. Eleven out of fourteen teams have to say yes. So if four teams say no." And it doesn't go through, and they're they're probably going to go. I'd soon go to the Pac-12 at that point. They'd really be really look pretty stupid if that happened. But the only team that's going to say no is is A&M, and that's pretty much what's being reported. Is it's going to get thirteen to one vote, just because all the other schools are going to get swayed by the money. As much as a school like maybe Tennessee probably doesn't want to see it happen. And the weird thing is, uh, I heard that Tennessee's trying to protest Texas that the when they join that Texas can't use their own, the, the Texas power T logo or the, or the UT logo. And cause Tennessee wants to be like, Hey, no, we were here first. And these are our logos. You can't use them. I don't know what Texas would go to, but I guess only the Longhorn logo. Good luck. <laughs> I think Texas might win that one. It's only, I think it's the wealthiest school in the country. I, I really don't think that they're going to get their way. I think that with them being the new kid in the block, the SEC has been a pretty fair conference um, and really, they not they don't even coddle Alabama. I mean, they do a little bit, but not that much that you would see like like Texas was in the Big Twelve. I don't think Texas is going to be able to walk in and just get whatever they want in the SEC. So that will be something interesting to see if that actually plays out of a change in logos for Texas when they come over because you have two UTs, um, both in orange, and the logos are extremely similar. That is true. That will be interesting. I, I can't imagine Texas is going to change. Texas by nature either. will not change. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> they, yeah, I will say Texas better get used to uh, horns down. That will not be – I guarantee you horns down will not be a penalty in the SEC like it was going like it's going to be the Big 12. No, I think everything goes in the SEC. <laughs> so – that, that was that was really the big news that, that came out. It started late last week at SEC Media Days um, and then was confirmed on Monday with Texas, yesterday with Texas and Oklahoma, giving that letter to their conferences. And then the SEC confirmed it today. Greg Sankey coming out saying that they've, they've said that they want to be schools. I think they're going to vote on it this week, maybe on Thursday is what I was hearing. So we should be able to, to get this resolved fairly quickly and, and know – by the next time we uh, we talk, yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting. I mean, it, it, it's pretty much all but signed the dotted line. It feels like, but definitely a big. I mean, certainly, other than the college football playoff, the biggest change, I think, that I can remember seeing in my lifetime, at least in terms of college football. 
college football will never be the same. Once you start going to these super conferences, it's going to look a lot like the NFL. Not saying it's a bad thing, but college football is done the way that we have known it to be the last 20 years. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's eventually going to get to a point where it's like, okay, we need to throw it out and restructure. It, it's just going to have to, because it'll pretty much be the, the SEC champions, the national champion here fairly soon. I mean, you got a few strongholds left. I don't think Ohio State will ever leave the Big Ten. Um, USC logistically <laughs> couldn't leave the Pac-12. Um, I, I think hell will freeze over before Notre Dame joins a conference. Yeah. Um, I mean, it. another one, it, it'll be interesting what happens with Clemson. I, I don't think it benefits them really in any way to leave the ACC, but it, of the power teams left out there that makes sense to join the SEC, I mean, geographically. Yeah, I mean, geographically, they make a lot of sense, and so does Florida State make a lot of sense, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if Florida State and Clemson leave the ACC. It's over. It's it's basically the Big 12 on the East Coast. <laughs> yeah, they'll just get picked off one by one. So, yeah, it, there will be a lot of change and a lot of conference realignment coming up here very, very quickly saw it a little bit the last time we had all those conference realignment, but it was nothing to the extent of what it will be now. Definitely not. So um, I I guess we'll, we'll wrap it up with, with a very touchy topic is this is the, um, is everyone I'm sure is following. If you're following this podcast, the Olympics started up uh, last weekend on, on Friday. And so we've had the first few days of Olympic events. And so, what's going to air tonight, which happened technically earlier, about 12 hours ago, live in Tokyo, was the U.S. Women's Olympic uh, team competition for gymnastics. Uh, obviously, we were prohibitive favorites coming into it with uh, Simone Biles kind of leading the charge. And then as everybody that has social media pretty much woke up to the news this morning that uh, there was, that Simone Biles – stepped out of the competition um, after her first run on the vault. And then the U S women's team proceeded to have to compete the rest of the day without Simone Biles. Um, spoiler alert. I'm guessing by the time anybody listens to this, it's already aired on TV. So uh, women went on to compete to get sil- the silver medal uh, without Simone, but it was obviously a, a very, very big moment as Simone pulled out, not for injury, but as uh, she said, she was struggling mentally. It was a um, mental health and, and a mental injury, as you will, was for the she Yeah, I mean, it's, like you said, a touchy topic, and, and who knows what's actually going on in her head. But I, I think nobody can discount the fact that pretty much the whole country had penciled her in to win gold and anything short of gold was going to be a disappointment, which, you know, for a 24 year old, it's a, it's a lot of pressure. And I, I can understand that, but certainly, you know, as a fan of the Olympic games, it's, it's disappointing not to see kind of our flagship athlete out there and competing at her best. I mean, we, we talked a little bit pre-show she's kind of been the, way Michael Phelps had been for, for so many years is like, this is, you know, the, the golden ticket. It's, it's not a matter of if they'll win a gold, it's a matter of how many they'll win. And, and 
in the qualifiers, I, I caught that. I, I don't follow gymnastics, to be honest, so I can't really tell you the form. But uh, the announcers were saying, like, this is very un Simone Miles like. You know, she wasn't sharp. She still won in terms of points, which is insane that you can not be sharp and be the best gymnast in the world. Um, but, you know, she walked off middle of the competition today. There was speculation early that she had been injured. Turns out it wasn't an injury. And her press conference said, like, look, you know, this whole year, it's been a lot of pressure. It hasn't been fun. You know, the list goes on and on. So it, it's, I, I, I guess I feel for her in the sense that you know, that's tough to have something that you work so hard and on the biggest stage be just not there for you. But, you know, at the same time, it's, I can't help but thinking had she felt that way pre-Olympics, let somebody else take her spot and she could still be there as a coach or in some role as, as we've seen in the past. But it, it's just, it's more disappointing than anything because, you know, you got the team that was pretty much, okay, you have Simone Biles and the supporting cast. And I hate to say that about these other Olympic athletes because, you know, they're all phenomenal. Obviously they're the best in the world at what they do, but Simone Biles is, you know, leaps and bounds ahead of everybody else in the world of gymnastics when she doesn't lose. She's the greatest of all time. I mean, she's got three or four yeah. different tricks in the sport named after her. Like currently named after her, that only there was a there's a um, trick they they told her that she had to stop doing because it was too dangerous of a trick. <laughs> I, I mean, the the girl is the greatest of all time, and I mean, my my first thought is, you know, I I my thoughts and prayers are with her. That I hope that she gets to feeling better. Mental health is something that I will never um, discount. It's not something to mess around with, um, and so. I don't hold that against her at all. I agree with you that if this is something that she's been struggling with for a long time, I wonder who else knew about this. If the rest of the U S team knew that this could be a potential possibility, but if you, if you watched her um, when they, when they competed on Sunday night was the preliminaries, she didn't look right. Um, some of she was pretty off from her normal median scores. Uh, I mean, in, in the world of gymnastics, it's not that high a scoring. They lost to Russia actually in the, in the preliminaries by one full point. And in two of Simone's best, <laughs> she basically missed out on a whole point, a half a point in each one on her score. So she was clearly performing worse than what her normal standards were. And if you looked at her first run, she, she really wasn't very into it. And frankly, that's not a sport that you should probably be, flipping yourself and throwing yourself around if you're not mentally in the, in the right headspace because that's you can cause injury pretty quick. So I, I'm not discounting her dropping out. I, it's just, like you said, it's a, it's a huge disappointment because I know we were all looking forward to it in the same way that we all used to really look forward to every four years. You know, yes, there are other swimming competitions. There's world championships in the same way there's world championships for gymnastics, but but it's every four years it's the Olympics. And that's the one that everyone really pays attention to. That's in gymnastics is a really popular Olympic sports. Anyway, swimming is a really popular Olympic sport that people watch it when they wouldn't normally watch it the rest of the year. And Michael Phelps held that pressure up for a long time of being the greatest Olympian, being able to, to go out there and compete and to hold that pressure, uh, you know, Olympic over Olympics and Simone, I guess, kind of faltered under the pressure. I don't really want to say cracked or, or disappointed, but um, you know, she she did fall down, and the the mental fatigue of it got to her clearly. Yeah, I mean it. It's it's a tough situation to be in. It's there's going to be 
people on both sides of it, but you know, it, what's done is done, and and hopefully it, it was it'll be the right decision long term. Agreed. I, I mean, you, know, you can't ever know what's going to happen in the future. This is likely her last Olympics. Um, I cannot see her competing at age. She's twenty four now, so she'd be twenty seven um, come Paris. So I don't see any way that she's going to be competing in three more years. It's just, it's really really old for a gymnast. Um, so this will likely be the last time that, you know, we will have seen her compete, which is a real shame because she has been the greatest in the sport of all time. So it's just yeah. to see one of the best go out. It's a lot like the feeling of, you know, if we don't ever see Tiger again, it's going to be a real shame if we see Tiger go out the way that, that he has. So you, you just, you never like to see these great athletes not go out on their own terms at a high point um, feeling good about themselves, having accomplished something. Yeah, I agree. So, but there's a lot of other Olympics still to go. Um, you know, this is just the first week. Got a whole nother week of it next week. Um, the USA team has been competing quite well so far. But last I looked, we were right up there in the medal count and uh, running for for gold. So for most golds as well. So it, it's been a successful Olympics, and I hope that you guys are all all tuning in day after day, night after night to, to NBC, NBC, uh, SN, USA. There's a lot of, a lot of different networks out there. Peacock's doing it, streaming NBC sports. You can catch any sport and there's, there's a whole lot of sports you don't get to normally watch otherwise. And you're seeing the best of the best in the world compete and do it, which is always really, really cool to me. Yes, it is. So, um, that's about, about all that we have here tonight on, on wrap for you guys. Uh, Joe, you got anything before we, we wrap it up here? No, nothing. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and let you guys get on out. We'll, we'll end this normally ended on a, on a go braze, but you know, we'll, we'll give a little shout out to the, to the red, white, and blue and give a good old go USA to end this. We, we ask you guys to like rate review, subscribe. Um, we, we appreciate everything, everybody reaching out. we Appreciate you guys sharing it on your social medias and helps get more listeners. And, and the more we can build this, uh, this audience, the, the more we enjoy doing it. So. Absolutely. All right. Well, everyone have a, a great rest of your day.